You know, most animals that get treated for clinical mastitis with an antibiotic are treated for five days. We know that um, because we've collected data on it. So most are treated for about five days. Uh, and you think about psychologically why that is, especially with drugs like Spectromastel C, where you've got a flexible label that says treat for two to eight days. The vast majority of those treatments are five days. Why is that? Because milk is abnormal about <laughs> five days and it feels so good, right? To finish your treatment and the milk looks normal. You're like, man, that worked. Okay. <laughs> And if you don't treat and you've got abnormal milk for five days, it creates this sense of uncertainty, like, wow, what did I do wrong? Welcome to Have You Heard, the AABP podcast. My name is Dr. Fred Gingrich. I'm the executive director of AABP. And this episode of Have You Heard is sponsored by Alanco Animal Health. For Defense Against Scours, there's only one option that delivers comprehensive protection and market-leading flexibility, Scour Boss. The Scour Boss vaccine provides broad-spectrum protection against up to nine pathogens and can be administered up to four months pre-cabin. When it comes to scour support, trust the boss to have your back. Talk to your herd health veterinarian today about incorporating Scour Boss into your program or learn more at scourboss.com. I want to thank Alanco for sponsoring this podcast. And our topic today is very important to the dairy industry and dairy veterinarians, and that is treatment of clinical mastitis. And joining us today is the chair of the AABP Milk Quality and Utter Health Committee and an expert on this topic, Dr. Pamela Ruig. Pam, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, Fred. It's really good to be here. I am the at Michigan State University. I hold the David J. Ellis Chair of antimicrobial resistance and large animal clinical sciences. And I'm back here at my alma mater after many years at the University of Wisconsin. Great. And Pam, I know that uh, this has been a big area of research for you. And so I want to dive right in and, and let's just review what is the incidence rate of mastitis compared to some other disease on dairy farms? Is this the biggest disease we have to deal with still today? We... When I say we, those of us working with mastitis, which should be all of the listeners out there, um, we are the big winner. We are absolutely, or I should say mastitis, is absolutely by far the most frequent disease of adult dairy cows. We actually have a kind of interesting data set recently. I think we had 50,000 cows in this data set from uh, 37 Wisconsin dairy herds, and we had um, a tremendous amount of information about animal health in those. And when we looked at clinical mastitis itself, so um, it occurred in about 28% of cows. The next most frequent disease recorded was lameness in about 12% of cows. And then metritis, ketosis, retained placenta, all well under 10%. And to me, the, 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 the really interesting thing is I remember when I started in practice, we were super interested in like metabolic diseases and such. 
And things like DA, um, milk fever, those diseases in this data set were um, about 1% to 3%. So when we look at the magnitude of the importance of clinical mastitis today, it, it, it actually has increased. It hasn't gone down, uh, whereas many other diseases have, have diminished. That's really interesting, and I always tell people here in the AABP office, we have over 50 years of proceedings and publications, and if you pull the first one off the shelf back from the late 60s, uh, the topics in the dairy sessions were mastitis, and in the beef sessions, it was BRD, and here we are 56 conferences later, and we're still trying to control these diseases, but I, I think it's very important for our listeners to understand and identify what are the big issues on dairy farms. And certainly, as as uh, Pam just stated, mastitis is certainly the number one. And so we should focus on that when we're having conversations with our dairy farm employees and owners. And one of the things you mentioned there, Pam, was clinical mastitis. And uh, how important is it to developing a case definition of clinical and subclinical mastitis when the veterinarian is developing a treatment protocol. Because, you know, when a cow comes in the parlor, uh, we have to provide those milkers with a case definition, correct? Yeah, you know, that's a, a, a great question that's got more complexities to it than it seems like it should. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things about mastitis is that it is detected and diagnosed almost exclusively by farm workers. And yet the protocols and the management of it, it's super important that veterinarians are engaged in that because it's the number one usage of antibiotics on dairy farms. So that case definition and the detection intensity and monitoring detection intensity and case definition are really important roles of the veterinarian. Now, let me just back up a little bit. You know, when we talk about mastitis, mastitis is a bacterial disease of dairy cattle. It's caused by intramammary infection of a number of different types of bacteria. And that intramammary infection with bacteria behaves just like any other bacterial infection of any other organ system. So bacteria get into the mammary gland, they multiply, they multiply, they multiply. At some point, the immune system recognizes that infection and responds. We get a migration of neutrophils into the mammary gland. And at that point, what we have is subclinical mastitis. And, you know, we're talking mostly about clinical mastitis today, but I really want to emphasize that today on any day on any dairy farm, about 15 to 35% of cows have subclinical mastitis, which means with definitions here, we've got normal appearing milk, but we have an excessive number of white blood cells in that milk, which we call somatic cells. And so subclinical mastitis means visually normal milk um, with a, a too many inflammatory cells. So that's typically somatic cell count over about 200,000. Now, clinical mastitis is defined as um, an intramammary infection, which has progressed to a state where we've got abnormal milk. In other words, the magnitude of the inflammation is greater. And so um, with clinical mastitis, we've got abnormal milk, or the most common case definitions that we use are based on the, the um, severity of the case. We, we'd say a mild case has abnormal milk only, a moderate case has abnormal milk 
and a um, abnormal udder, and then a, a severe case, you've got systemic signs, you've got a sick cow. Now, one more thing I want to emphasize on that is in, in even the mild cases, um, you usually have some uh, degree of reduced milk production that day when clinical mastitis starts. So you might have a 10 or 20% reduction in, in production from the previous milking. And that's often how the milking technicians actually detect it. Yeah, and you, you mentioned that, you know, this is the number one disease on dairy farm, and it's a number one reason to use antibiotics on a dairy farm. So, you know, we're going to talk today about uh decisions for deciding when you're going to reach for those antibiotics how uh it is you know that is the most common reason to use antibiotics on a dairy that's correct and how do these decisions uh influence an overall antimicrobial stewardship uh program on dairies yeah you know it's um because it's the most common bacterial disease of dairy cattle and because of kind of the history of how we've developed treatment protocols over time, when researchers like myself or others go in and, and count up the number of doses or regimens or courses of antimicrobial therapy given on dairy farms to adult cows, um, the treatment or um, dry-off therapy for uh, mastitis is typically somewhere between 65 to 85% of all doses of antibiotics used on farms. So when we look at antimicrobial stewardship, when we look at trying to make sure we're optimizing antibiotic usage on dairy farms, we really can't make much progress unless we are engaged in making the right decisions about antibiotic treatments for mastitis. So there's um, really almost no way we can progress in optimizing antibiotic usage on farms without being heavily involved in antibiotic um, decisions for mastitis. So there's a lot of opportunities for veterinarians to work in this area, but it's a little bit tricky to work in that area because the disease is so common and um, not typically um, life-threatening that often veterinarians have to proactively engage themselves in making sure they understand the incidence, the recurrence, and the KPIs, the key performance indicators for this disease. Otherwise, they, they may be left out of many of the decisions. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we try to do with AABP is offer tips to our members for how you can create opportunities for you on dairies. And when I was in practice, it seemed that there was three basic uh, treatment protocols for clinical mastitis, often developed by the farmers themselves, of course, and that is treat all the cases, treat some of the cases, or treat none of the cases, and don't use any tubes. Um, so can you, Pam, give us a little bit of discussion on maybe what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of those approaches? Yeah, you know, um, the interesting thing about being in a profession for a long time is you can kind of remember all of the phases. When I was in veterinary school, chloramphenicol was still used and um, uh, everything was treated with chloramphenicol. <laughs> and we were absolutely sure that that was, was the only way to treat things. 
And then I think it was the month I graduated from vet school, they banned chloramphenicol. <laughs> and so like all of my veterinary education went down the tubes because I had been taught to treat everything with chloramphenicol. And I, I assumed then that we'd have a lot of treatment failures, a lot of dead animals. Of course, we didn't. And it's similar with mastitis therapy in general. With mastitis therapy in general, um, when I went to veterinary school, we were taught there were really three types of, three pathogens and, and causes of mastitis. One was E. coli. And we were taught that E. coli caused cows to die. And, and uh, so it was a medical emergency. You had to jump all over those cases and throw everything at them. The second type of mastitis was um, Streptococcus agalactia. And I was just at the end of the strep ag era, but when you saw Streptococcus agalactia, you would treat those with an intramammary antibiotic and they would all get better. And then the third kind of mastitis that, that occurred was Staphylococcus aureus. And with Staphylococcus aureus, of course, you know, you could treat them all day long and most of them remained chronic and you had to end up culling those cows. So it was basically you'd treat them or you'd eat them or they'd die. And that was really what we we thought were the treatment protocols. <laughs> and I bring that up because that's kind of the history of um, those three protocols that you're discussing. You know, treat everything, don't treat anything, or, you know, um, uh, don't use any antibiotics at all. And so let's talk a little bit about... Um, kind of those strategies. Uh, first of all, none of those strategies are appropriate for every case. Mastitis is caused by a variety of pathogens. And just like any bacterial disease, you have to match your treatment protocol with the etiology um, of the, uh, of the uh, bacteria causing the disease. And so what has happened in the last, say, 30 years is we basically eradicated Streptococcus agalactia. So the treat everything protocol that that actually probably was wise when Streptococcus agalactia was prevalent is not really either economically or socially responsible today. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So treat everything is the least effective strategy. Treat um, nothing is a recent kind of evolution, although we've been in that stage before in the mid-80s, where the assumption is if you give no antibiotic treatment, all the animals will self-cure. And um, some of them will, but some of them won't. Because some of the bacterial infections, things especially like um, Streptococcus, um, uh, Uberus, Streptococcus dysgalactia, they have relatively low spontaneous cure rates. So that strategy isn't very effective either. The, the actual most responsible and economically efficient strategy is to treat based on a diagnosis. And when we do that, when we do rapid culture techniques and such, we end up having kind of a mixed strategy where about 40% of the cases are usually culture negative, um, somewhere culture negative, 20, 30% are gram negatives. Those two groups, most of them don't require treatments. They have a high spontaneous cure rate. 
And then the third group of, of organisms, the gram positives, a fairly significant proportion of those will not spontaneously cure unless they get antimicrobial therapy. So the hard answer to is that um, we have to know what we're treating to effectively prescribe a treatment. And that's very difficult to do without um, actually doing some microbiology. Yeah, and that's a great place for veterinarians to get involved. And, you know, these programs have been talked a lot about for quite some time, but I have seen, uh, you know, on, on social media and in a discussion with uh, uh, veterinarians that they're not quite sure how to implement these programs. So what are what are some reasons first, Pam, that that a dairy farm might consider or a veterinarian might consider recommending to a dairy uh, that they implement a culture-based uh, treatment protocol? Yeah, so if we think about what 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 is the state of the art today, the state of the art today for appropriate treatment of non-severe primary cases of mastitis, I really want to emphasize we're talking, we are not talking about sick cows here today. You know, if we have a sick cow, we're going to jump on those cows. They're medical emergencies. They require fluid therapy and, and non-steroidals. And, you know, those are emergencies. What we're talking about right now are the non-severe cases, which make up about 85 to 90% of the cases on most farms. And the appropriate state-of-the-art treatment today on that is, when possible, we want to be selective therapy based on culture results. And they don't have to be, um, uh, you know, a diagnostic lab quality culture results. We basically are trying to um, direct our treatments, our intramammary antibiotics for gram positive cases. We're, we're basically trying to make some decisions whether or not that, that cow actually um, would benefit from antibiotics. We're trying to weed out the chronically affected cases. And we're trying to decide um, uh, which animals can effectively mount an immune response um, that will will eliminate the pathogen without the need for antibiotics. So selective therapy isn't just based on culture. Selective therapy is based on A, having a good detection program in place so you find your non-severe cases. B, reviewing the somatic cell count and health history of cows before using an antibiotics so you weed out all the chronic cows. And then C, ideally doing a 24-hour culture system to find the no-growths and the gram-negatives, which have very high rates of spontaneous cure, and then reserving our intramammary antibiotics for gram-positives. And so, you know, the steps to start that start with um, having a recording system, a case severity scoring system, and having monthly somatic cell count data for cows so we can get a pretty good idea if these cows are chronic or not. So it's not all just about culturing. A lot of it's about um, kind of medical history. Yeah, and so <clears throat> those are great tips. Uh for our listeners to walk through when they're considering these programs. But I think one of the things that I've been asked is just the logistics 
of implementing these programs on dairies of all sizes, small yep. farms to big farms. And then, you know, what are some things that should be in place? You mentioned records, case severity systems, somatic cell count, but just in general, because we have all different types of dairies and what they're yep. capable and incapable of doing. So what should a veterinarian consider when they're saying, you know, this is a good, this is a farm that we should probably do this, or this farm should correct this before I go down this road. Yeah, I think there's really five steps to take. And, and you know, um, on some of these steps you can do without without any um, culture systems at all. I mean, you can improve mastitis therapy without culturing. And we can get to that a little, little while later. But let me talk through the five steps. The first one is really detection. So um, training the, the milking technicians to have a standard definition of mastitis. And to do that, that severity scoring is really important. So we have to have severity scores in place. That one, two, three system, mild, moderate, severe cases, we need to train them to record that. That's amazingly valuable for the consulting veterinarian because you can review on any size farm, let's say the last 20 cases or, 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 or 10 cases of clinical mastitis that occurred and get a pretty good idea of what their definition is. And the reason is we know what the distribution of severity should be. About um, 50% of clinical mastitis cases should have only abnormal milk. 35 to 40% should, should be moderate, so abnormal milk in a swollen quarter. And f- about 15% or less should be sick. So step one, detection training them to detect them, reviewing those severity scores, the local veterinarian can rapidly figure out if they're catching cases. Because if you go to a farm and um, they're recording severity scores and half the cases are severe, you know they're not detecting most of the cases. So detection is step one. And it helps you then get an idea of if your training is effective as well. Because you'll know... um what they, what they're detecting and how it fits with what our expectations are. Second step in, um, kind of improving our mastitis therapy is to, um, after you assign that severity score is to, um, make a decision if that animal needs immediate symptomatic therapy, which would be those severe cases, or if the next step would be um, reviewing the medical history of that cow. So again, we haven't done any culturing here, but we can already make some decisions. So we've got a non-severe case. Don't grab a tube. Train them not to grab the tube and treat. But the next step is to go look at the records of these animals and see, have they had previous cases of clinical mastitis? Have they had several months of high somatic cell count. In either of those instances, it's time to like make a decision on, is this a chronic cow? And if this is a chronic cow, is she deserving of more antimicrobial therapy? And most of the time, the answer to that will be no. Because, you know, um, chronic cows don't have good responses to therapy. So, you know, one of the key things when we when we review this history of the cow, when we take take a look at that history of the cow, we're going to figure out 
um, a little bit about our previous therapies. And so that also helps the local veterinarian understand our uh, the compliance on the farm with previous therapies and the responses to to previous therapies. And those are hard that's hard data for farms to get, for veterinarians to get. So you review the history of the cow and make a decision is this cow um this non-severe case someone we consider for antibiotics if she's a chronic case we probably don't want to use it. Another thing to look at is previous culture data. You may have previous culture data on a cow, um, and you can use that in making your decision. If she is um, a cow that is not uh, chronic, the next decision is, can I do culture-based therapy? Do I have the ability to do that, or do I need to treat her symptomatically? And if you can do culture-based therapy, we've got a couple options. In larger farms, we can do on-farm culturing. In smaller farms, we can do culturing based in a veterinary clinic. And in both of these instances, you um, typically would want to take your milk sample, bring it back to your clinic or set it up on farm and um, let it grow for 24 hours and then make your antibiotic treatment decision based on the results of that culture. But I really want to stress, that's like the third or fourth step in this. All of those steps that go before that, you can do without having to do the microbiology. And many of those steps, especially looking at that history of that cow, that will exclude, that will reduce the number of non-necessary antibiotics that are given on the farm. Yeah, and so when when you get that culture result, Pam, Yep. Um, what what does the dairy typically do with the cow while we're waiting 24 yeah. hours? Does, yeah. she, does she go to the hospital pen if it's a small farm and they yep. just bucket milk hospital cows? You know, how, how have you seen those managed? Because I get yeah. a lot of those questions too. Well, I won't tell you how I've seen them managed. I'll tell you how they... <laughs> how should they be managed? That's a better question. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, legally, uh, any milk that's appearing abnormal cannot be um, put in a bulk tank. So um, the veterinarian who's, you know, we're responsible for food safety and for compliance with FDA regulations. Veterinarians should be advising these animals, these these uh, farmers to exclude that abnormal milk from the bulk tank. Easiest way to do that is send the cow to a hospital pen. I do recommend sending cows on bigger farms to hospital pens um, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is often those hospital pens get more um, attention from uh, the herds people on farms, and you should be monitoring these cows um, to make sure they're not progressing in severity score from a one to a two or a two to a three, that they're not getting sicker. We've actually looked at the percentage that do. It's, it's, it's typically less than about 10%, but some of them do progress because you've caught them early. So, you know, if you send them to a hospital pen, somebody should be looking at these cows and making sure they're maintaining health, they're not getting sicker. If they do get sicker, if the case progresses, you want to jump on those cases and treat them right away. Second reason for the hospital pen is, of course, um, you want to discard the milk. Third reason for that hospital pen is maybe she's infected with, with um, you know, a contagious type of mastitis, and you really don't want her being milked immediately before a healthy cow and, and contaminating that milking unit. So there's a lot of reasons to move those cows to the hospital pen, and their milk should be discarded. And then the advantage of not treating them is you're 
cost savings on drugs, your your uh, milk discard? Do we see cows that are on a culture-based program? They go to the hospital, um, but they're not treated. They're uh, they're a gram negative or a no growth. Yep. Do those cows tend to get back in in the milk tank uh, with saleable milk? Earlier, is that one of the economic benefits of a program like this as well? Is that and how big is that benefit? Yeah, they actually do. They go back into the bulk tank faster because um, milk is abnormal on average three to uh, five and a half days with or without treatment, with or without bacteriological cure. So and we have data from a number of studies where we've measured that. We're really confident in that number. And, um, the when we've done randomized clinical trials where we have a non-treated group and a treated group or a non-treated group, a short duration group, a long duration treatment group, um, the non-treated cases are typically um, abnormal about half a day to a day less than the treated group. If you put something in the quarter, it slightly extends the duration of abnormal milk. So the economic benefit of non-treatment is um, based primarily on the fact you have no milk withhold after the milk returns to normal. So if your milk is abnormal for about three and a half, let's say four days, they're going to go back in the tank at five days. If you're treating for five days, um, you're going to be discarding for eight and you're going to lose about three days of milk discard. And so the longer you treat, the more it costs. And uh, so you can have some pretty considerable savings on your milk discard um, by having a no treatment policy for appropriate cases. One of the things that uh, I have heard from producers and veterinarians is, you know, well, what am I going to expect with this? Am I going to get the same success rate by limiting the number of cows I'm treating as if I just, you know, guessed and treated the ones I want without any type of culture or any uh, decision based on pathogen? Do we get the same number of good outcomes and bad outcomes? One of the, one of the things that I saw in practice is that, you know, the Purdue gets, uh, you know, a cow die of, uh, uh, you know, a, a severe septicemia, and then they want to abandon the program because they think they should just go back to tubing everything, even though gram negatives probably shouldn't be tubed. So, what conversations should veterinary have at the beginning of the program so everyone is has expectations yeah there's a few things uh that are that are pretty important relative to the expectations one of the first expectations um has to do with how long the milk will be abnormal it's it's you know going to be three and a half to five and a half days but about 10% of them will probably still have abnormal milk at seven days we know that um, because we've measured that. So, you know, it's not going to be a hundred percent of the animals that are going to behave according to what our research and other people's research have shown. It's going to be about 90% of them. So there, there will be outliers. Second thing is, um, uh, you know, most animals that get treated for clinical mastitis with an antibiotic are treated for five days. We know that um, because we've collected data on it. So most are treated for about five days. Uh, and you think about psychologically why that is, especially with drugs like Spectromastel C, where you've got a flexible label that says treat for two to eight days. The vast majority of those treatments are five days. Why is that? 
because milk is abnormal about <laughs> five days and it feels so good, right? To finish your treatment and the milk looks normal. You're like, man, that worked. Okay. <laughs> and if you don't treat and you've got abnormal milk for five days, it creates this sense of uncertainty. Like, wow, what did I do wrong? If I treated her, it would go back to normal. So part of it's, you know, psychological. And so one of the things we have to do as veterinarians when we're, when we're saying, Hey, reduce the amount of treatments or reduce the duration of treatments or only treat selective cases is we got to really make sure the producer understands what we're trying to accomplish. We really have to communicate the, the milk discard is going to be less. The days of abnormal milk will not be less. They'll be about the same. And so we've got to let them know that, and, you know, probably 90% of the cases will will behave like we want them, probably 10% won't, which is what happens with treatments in general. So we've got to make sure we set the stage right so the producer understands what we're trying to accomplish. And then I'm sure you have heard this uh, many times, Pam, over your career from dairy producers. as all veterinarians have, and that is, you know, these tubes just don't work. And we need to go back to What You know, I've heard you talk about this uh, many times, you know, is antimicrobial resistance a primary factor in the success or failure of clinical mastitis therapy? Yeah, you know, um, it, it is pretty interesting because we've had less and less and less drugs um, in our toolbox over the years, uh, and the success rates um, really have not declined. I, you know, I, I always tell this story. Um, in the first few years that I got out of practice, that I was in practicing, um, I absolutely believed. And by the way, I'm not recommending this, folks. I absolutely believed that you had to give intramammary genomycin <laughs> and um, um, and flunixin to treat a cow that was sick with mastitis. And I was doing a lot of primary treatments there. And I was in uh, Wisconsin doing that. I was in California doing that. I was in Prince Edward Island practicing doing that. And I was 100% sure that if I didn't use genomycin in the quarter and, um, and basically banamine, the cow would die. And then... I, I remember Ron Erskine published a paper that said like genomycin didn't do anything. And, you know, we had to like keep the cow for two years after giving genomycin. And um, I was like, oh, well, I'm working, you know, I better pay attention to some of the research. And so I very nervously, the next sick cow I went to treat did not use genomycin. And I was shocked she didn't die. (laughs) Um, because I knew in my heart that, that, that I had to give genomycin or she would die. And that was the beginning of me understanding that my clinical impressions were not very reliable. Um, because I was a hundred percent wrong and I was out of school by five years by then. Um, and so, you know, understanding that our clinical impressions aren't always correct is pretty important to, to know. Um, if we don't treat um, clinical cases, what we're depending on is for the cow to mount a successful immune response. 
And so what we're doing when we say, okay, we've got a case here that that we believe doesn't need antibiotics, what we're doing is we're taking all of our money and we're betting it on the cow's immune response, which means the other factor we really need to consider when we're making these decisions is, am I willing to bet on that cow's immune response? So that's another cow-level thing we as veterinarians can do, and it, it, part of that is just clinical judgment, where we look at a cow and we're like, um, well, this cow just calved with twins. She's body condition score 2.75. She had a retained placenta and was subclinically hypocalcemic, and she's got a Culture negative case of clinical mastitis today. And oh, by the way, it's 104 degrees out with 90% relative humidity. Now, if you were just depending on your culture result in your protocol, in your algorithm, you'd be like, okay, she's culture negative. I won't treat her. But I'll tell you what, I would treat her. I would give that cow antibiotics, intramammary antibiotics, probably depending on the farm and the history. Because I'm not willing to bet all my money on a successful immune response in a cow like that. So as veterinarians, I think we have a tremendous um, role to play in training our herds people and the people administering treatments on farms on how to use better um, clinical judgment to help us make decisions about when antibiotics are required as well. A great role for veterinarians. Uh, uh, thanks for mentioning that, Pam. And as we close up here, you know, once these programs are uh, implemented on farms or if farms already have them, um, you know, if we have a listener who says, oh, yeah, I've been doing that for years, let's talk about monitoring. What's the role of the herd veterinarian on monitoring these programs? What are some things they can do? Well, I'm going to refer, uh, refer, the, the, first of all, there's a huge role for veterinarians. I think this is, um, an under, um, appreciated practice area for many veterinarians, but we have to kind of insert ourselves in there and demonstrate value. One of the most important roles, A, I mentioned already is training. Um, the second role is, um, uh, quality control on the on-farm culture systems. I am an enormous advocate of on-farm culture systems. I've been working with them since the year 2000. And I'll tell you, there's tons of mistakes made in them. And um, so there's an enormous role for veterinarians to go in and look at the plates, look at the diagnostic criteria. You know, one colony of um, a non-aureous staff on the edge of a plate, uh, that's not significant growth. So defining significant growth, defining non-significant growth, monitoring compliance with treatment protocols, making sure that the treatment protocols are actually being administered in, in the appropriate way, making sure that uh, especially when um, herds people turn over, when a new herds person comes, that they're trained in the treatment protocols. I see a lot of errors in that. Um, making sure that um, milk samples are collected properly. You know, fundamentally in an on-farm culture program, the most critical step in the entire thing is collection of a clean milk sample. Because if it is not properly collected, you will always have growth. And when we're using selective medias, which suppress growth of some types of bacteria, it's really hard to diagnose contamination. 
I could go on on and on and on about the uh, role of the veterinarian, but uh, boy, there's just a huge amount of opportunities. Absolutely. And uh, I want to remind our listeners and, and, and thank you so much, uh, Pam, for your time today on this podcast. Uh, a couple things I want to remind our listeners. First, I want to uh, just tell our listeners that uh, Dr. Ruig is the chair of our Milk Quality and Other Health Committee. It's a great way to get involved with AABP. If you're passionate about milk quality, uh, consider joining that committee. You can click on the email committee button on the committee page um, and uh, uh, join that committee and uh, help us develop resources for our members. But as you're driving around in your trucks today, remind yourself this is the number one disease on dairy farms by far and away, and it's the number one reason to use antibiotics on farms. And it is a critical role for the veterinarian to implement antimicrobial stewardship programs. And so if you're not starting with mastitis, uh, you're going to really miss the boat on uh, uh, those regimens and decreasing the inappropriate use of antibiotics on dairy farms. So there's a tremendous role here for veterinarians. As Pam talked to us today, make sure that you're going through those steps. It's not all about just culturing a cow and making a decision. Make sure you're taking a holistic approach and a great role for veterinarians is in training our milking technicians and farm staff on how to do these things, how to identify the cows, and how to follow the protocols that you have developed for those farms, as well as monitoring them. Don't just grab a tube as your first step. Make sure that you're looking at the cow and you're looking at the program that you have developed for that farm and then doing that monitoring uh, of on-farm cultures as well as monitoring your in-house cultures. Utilize an outside lab to check yourself to make sure that you're uh, doing that quality control step on yourself too. Get those culture results to your farms and help them implement uh culture-based clinical mastitis treatment decisions. Pam, thank you so much for your time today uh, on this podcast. Appreciate it. Hey, Fred, can I do a little bit of shameless self-promotion? Absolutely. So I've got a, a YouTube channel. Yes. That has a huge number of short videos. I think we've got about 50 of them. We've had a lot of views and we have a series there about um, on-farm culture. I think it's a 10-part series. And uh, including, uh, I think the the last video is called What Can Go Wrong? That's a great one to review. (laughs) So you can find that by Googling uh, either Top Milk or UW Milk Quality, and it'll bring you right to that YouTube channel. Yes, and that's a great comment, Pam. I have seen those videos, many of them, and uh, we're going to put a link. We'll put a link in the show notes for our listeners to look at those. It's good information uh, for veterinarians as well as for producers. So thank you so much. All right. Very good. Thanks, Fred. 